Hey, it's Isabel. My heroes this week are my new patrons, Edward Sauer and Trafford Judd. I now have my hosting bill covered. Thank you. To help me make Borderline, you can join at borderlinepod.com or look for it on Patreon. Members get every episode early, extra content and access, and a shout out right here. Thank you so much, Edward and Traff. This is why I'm revolting against the, the concept of resilience, because if you take pride in it, it becomes as if it's okay and you have to accept everything. I don't want to be strong. I just want to fix things so it doesn't happen anymore. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. It's become a bit of a trope to say 2020 is an awful year. Yeah, none of us is having the year we'd hoped for or expected, and except for a few strange ones who've enjoyed lockdown, and you know that friend, we're all ready to move on. We get it. But if there's one group of people who'd be excused for dwelling on just how terrible the past year has been, it'd be the Lebanese. It started with an economic collapse which triggered political chaos, in a country where politics is usually some shade of chaotic. There were wildfires, the worst in decades, and protests with up to a million people on the streets. Then only came the epidemic. And as COVID cases were rising, an apocalyptic explosion tore through Beirut, killing 200 people, injuring thousands, and rendering hundreds of thousands homeless. Now, unable to rise to the occasion, the political class has failed to come together and form a government. The Lebanese are used to chaos, unused to leaving chaos behind. There are more Lebanese people outside the country, 6 to 9 million, than inside, about 4 million. One of those Lebanese expats is my friend Lynn Schumann. She's a journalist in Dubai. We crossed paths at LinkedIn. She was on her way in when I was on my way out. She was home in Beirut in August and miraculously survived the explosion, not without injury or trauma. She kindly agreed to speak with me about how she and her countrymen are dealing with it all and how one relates to a country that keeps pushing you away, yet calling you home. Clearly, there was a lot weighing on her heart because she jumped right in. Let's jump right in with her. It's so good to talk to you. It's been a while. Yeah, thank you so much for thinking of me. I, I just really hope that I'll be able to put some, you know, points in en relief or and highlight them and maybe try and think with other people what they, um, their thoughts also would be amazing to have because um, it's still shocking to everyone that has been there and also to people who have heard about what's happening. It's uh, still a shock that everyone is trying to absorb. Yeah, I bet. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe that, that's where we can start. I'm mindful of not wanting to repeat trauma. So you know, feel free to share however much you, you want to. And, and actually, when you talk about a shock, are you talking about the political situation, the explosion, both? Mm. So I'm, I'm trying to think about this, right? Because I was directly subjected to the shock. I, I lived the, the shock, the explosion. I was super lucky because I got out of it alive and I'm observing myself. I'm trying to take notes of my reactions, my thoughts around it and the phases uh, of how I'm dealing personally with this and also how my friends and how the community in general is dealing with that. 
So when I talk about shock, I mean also absorbing the shock and realizing how used to disappointment certain communities are today um, with also the world changing drastically around us. It's like you have to quickly get over things and quickly make sense out of things. So the shock, the physical one, the shock about death, the shock about homeless people, we're talking about more than 300,000 homeless people, more than 200 deaths. We're talking also about a situation where we don't, still don't have any understanding of, right? So what happened is on the 4th, on August 4th, a massive explosion hit the, the port of Beirut. And it was an explosion of 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate, right? So th this happened on a regular day. The cause of it, we know the title, right? We know the, 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 the general framework. The cause of it is basically criminal negligence. But we still, up until today, don't have an idea about what actually happened. So this is, this is a shock. This is even more shocking than, than the, the, the scenery that I was subjected to or the, the fact that I... I had glass fall over me, over me or the, the, the death uh, that I've seen. So it's like different layers of shock. Also, mostly, it's the shock of the analysis that you hear today and the uh, political analysis uh, that basically remind you of every single thing that happened in the past. So basically, when you, when, when you hear that the, the explosion that hit Beirut has led Lebanon to a point of no return, this expression that, we, that we're hearing a lot in the press and with analysis, etc. So when you hear that, you think, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, what we actually think about when we hear that kind of analysis is, well, uh, return to what exactly? And from what, you know? So it's a, it's a general state of uncertainty and things we are and I am personally still trying to pinpoint and identify. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going we're gonna to try and talk through some of it. I don't know if this will help you make sense. I, I certainly, I know it will help me understand and, and hopefully help the audience as well. So when you, when you were talking about the political analysis, is this what you're hearing about Lebanon coming from foreign media, from the outside, or is this what you're hearing from, from the inside and from Lebanese people themselves? It, it's, it's both. Uh, both the international media and the local media are saying basically the same thing, and they're trying to reflect what's happening on, on the ground, be it with the latest you know, statements we've been hearing from Emmanuel Macron, for example, or the deadlock is actually happening on the ground. But the main message, the main conclusion that those reports are, are, are ending with is this, is that we are getting to a point of, of no return, right? So recently, the Lebanese leaders were not up to the promise they personally gave Emmanuel Macron, the French president, after the explosion. The promise was basically about forming a government, right? And if I want to analyze it a bit, or at least understand a bit my reaction towards this, it wasn't really surprising. The fact that they didn't actually 
come together and form a government after the explosion. It's not a surprise. It's not a surprise because, well, one, Macron is basically asking those political leaders who are deeply attached to their sectarianism, he's asking them to shoot themselves in the foot, like commit political suicide. And, and also it's not surprising because failing to form a government is something that Lebanon is quite used to in its modern history. And what's actually happening today is basically giving a new chance to a group of parties who have failed their people over and over again. But, but beyond whether he was right or wrong to make comments or judgments vis-a-vis what should be done in Lebanon, the, the desperation of the Lebanese people, it, it, it's making them accept this and, and wait for the French president to support Also, one important point is that they're waiting also for financial aid, right? The financial aid is in the hands of the international community. And financial aid is something that is really, really needed now in Lebanon. So I, I read the tweet, like someone said, no Macron, no money, basically. It's, it's also this kind of dynamic that is happening. How does that you know, make you feel as a, as a Lebanese woman to both not have much hope in internal leadership and at the same time be at the mercy of external leadership? I think as, as unfortunate as my sentence would sound, but I am used to this and I have grown up and I have built my personality and I'm not, I'm not talking about me as lean. I'm, I'm, I think I'm talking about a lot of other people from Lebanon we just grew up and we just learned to be adults away from a system that will protect us. And the whole idea of government being on your side, you were talking in, in I think it was your last episode uh, on the podcast. Yes, I do listen to it. <laughs> uh, you were talking with Wade, Wade Davis about mm -hmm. this, about the role uh, of government, the faith in your country, right? So basically it's when that the government is us, is you. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have this and this is not uh, new because we never actually relied on any system for guarantees because if I would rely on a certain system, the system is corrupt, which means that I am signing up for that. So I am signing up for a sectarian system that basically will not treat me equally with my other with another Lebanese citizen basically so this is this is my situation and I think the situation of many Lebanese so I wonder then how does your how does your Lebanese identity kind of work how do you think about belonging to your country if you don't believe in its in its government or its institutions this is actually this has been on my mind for a couple of years now. I've been living abroad for eight years now and a bit more. And I often reflect about my sense of identity because I haven't actually felt that my identity got weaker when I moved away from my country. Of course, I am developing other sides of me and other belongings, right? But I never felt that, even, even after the explosion, I did not feel that my sense of belonging and identity got affected uh, 
because maybe I, after years and years of political deadlock uh, and of wars, well, I was not born, uh, but I was, uh, I was raised right after the war, right? With a very negative outlook on how things are looking, the, the road ahead. The question is, why are we still attached to this country? Because I see it in myself and I see it in many other Lebanese, uh, uh, be it in Lebanon or also abroad. So what does belonging mean to those who are you know, still in Lebanon, but still at the same time would jump on any opportunity to leave? And also those who are part of the diaspora, who are uh, lost slash trying to figure out their new sense of identity. So maybe the one, one way to answer this question is the culture that brings us together is the common history that we have. And by history, I mean the history that we got from a personal level, right? Because we also have a major problem in Lebanon that, for instance, after the civil war happened and ended, after 15 years, basically, of the civil war, we still have no one history to actually understand what happened during those 15 years. So when I say history, I do not mean political history. I mean, we have also relied on personal experience to, I, to find our sense of identity. And it's quite strong because I, I feel it in, like in myself and in many Lebanese friends I have, the, because maybe the culture is very strong and the story is even stronger. So this is maybe why we kept this side of this hold of identity. I was reading right before the explosion, actually, I was rereading Amin Malouf randomly. It was, I, I, I don't even remember what led me to uh, pick up his book again. And, and, and I remember I stumbled upon like one of his quotes that I really love. He says, I come from no country, from no city, no tribe. I am the son of the roads. All tongues and all prayers belong to me, but I belong to none of them. Mm. And I reflected a lot about this because being an expat and also a Lebanese, I do feel a very strong sense of belonging, but at the same time, I feel a very uh, a sense of freedom from this because I don't rely on a system. There's so much to, to unpack here. The point you made about the history, is it that there's no kind of shared national narrative of what's happened in the past decades that, that everyone can agree on? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Exactly. So, so, so the civil war lasted for 15 years almost, killed more than 90,000 people. Um, there was the Ta'if agreement that came right after the war and that basically this agreement stated that it's very important to abolish the political sectarianism, right? And it basically gave all the leaders, the Lebanese leaders, a chance and even an ask to abolish political sectarianism and for this to be a fundamental national objective. But years after the agreement came into effect, no reform actually happened. And those leaders were not able to come together and agree on 
one rhetoric which puts us in this weird uh, place. And obviously this led to like those political leaders staying there and giving or doing absolutely no reform. We hear a lot about sectarianism in, in Lebanon and in how much things are divided between the different communities. And then the Lebanese diaspora is one of the largest in the world, if you look comparatively to, to the population of, of Lebanon. And it's, in my experience at least, it just feels like a diaspora that actually has a very strong sense of identity. There are people from all over the world that I, that I encounter as expats, and I feel like Lebanese people, like I will know pretty quickly that they're Lebanese because it's just something that they, that they seem to you know, put forward a lot and, and be proud of. I think that identity inside and outside of Lebanon is very strong. But what is particular about it is that it is personal and you do realize how it's homogeneous, actually. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with a common sense of history. But it has to do with uh, many, many layers of uh, uh, culture, be it music, be it literature, be it sentences and sayings, be it education. And it's weird because you see a population that is super divided in terms of sects and you see a population that is super divided when it comes to having one political identity, one political power. And it's chaos. It's chaotic. But then again, it's exactly what you were saying. When you meet a Lebanese, you know that they are Lebanese. And it is homogeneous. So the identity is there, but it's a particular one because it is the identity of culture. So maybe that what that is what makes Lebanese a bit Lebanese <laughs> the way they are, and it's in the details, but it's also in the values that they have when they talk about resilience, for example. It's this word some people, including myself, are now a bit sensitive to. But those values that we cultivated because this population has been through a lot, this is what gives us the common denominator and this is what basically make us, makes us have this identity. Mm, sort of unity in, in adversity. You just touched on something big, I think, here. You said yeah, you have an issue with, with resilience. Tell me about that. Yeah, because it's a, it's a concept that we were raised on. It's the idea of being strong and getting over things it is what uh, our parents' generation took pride of, which is amazing when you think of, of it, right? Resilience is very important. Resilience helps you to deal with shocks and it helps you to think of the way forward. It helps you to basically build on your reality, whether it's a good reality or bad reality. So super proud of the, this resilience factor after those wars and after all the conflict that, that Lebanon has been through. I remember, for example, my father and his best friend taking us 
to downtown Beirut at the beginning of the 90s. We were kids. The beginning of the 90s, the war had just ended. And they finally had the chance to go to downtown Beirut again after 15 years. My brother and I, we saw them like they were super happy and they didn't even believe that they actually were in downtown Beirut after all this time. So they would, you know, have tears in their eyes, super touched, super proud that their city, Beirut, is still alive after 15 years of blood, of death. Maybe they were reflecting on themselves as well, right? They were giving themselves an homage for what they have been through, the inhumane situations they have been dealing with because of the war. But us, my brother and I, we would look at the city, at the downtown, at downtown Beirut, and not really understand the pride of, uh, of my father and of his best friend, the, the pride of resilience. Of course, now I do get it because the city is still there. But we would tell them, hey, your buildings have bullets in them. The only thing you can share about your city and those places is the past. But still, they would be proud of this. And now I'm a bit sensitive when it comes to mentioning resilience, because how I think about it today is that, hey, you know what, maybe I, I don't have to deal with this. There shouldn't have been an explosion because of someone being corrupt and, and having a criminal either intention or whatever. I, like, I, maybe, maybe I should not even deal with that. So this is why I'm revolting against the, the concept of resilience, because if you take pride in it, at a certain point, it becomes as if it's okay and you have to deal with everything and you have to accept everything. And I think the Lebanese people have accepted so much throughout the year because they were not empowered to, to do anything about it. So this is why I have a problem today with the concept of resilience. Although deep down in me, I, I do take pride as well, exactly like my dad. And I do reflect in the same way as he did when he saw downtown Beirut. And I have the same thoughts when I see my streets today. But I prefer to hide it and say, I don't want to be strong. I just want to fix things so it doesn't happen anymore. Mm. That's so important. That, yeah, you, you can be proud to be strong, but you shouldn't have to have to be so strong all the time, right? Yeah. In a way, resilience is uh, can become a renouncement. Just just giving up on demanding better. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's basically acceptance. It's a double-edged sword. Acceptance. So accepting is good because it makes you absorb, understand but it also makes you numb and it makes you passive. Not saying we're passive, not at all, but it is why I think some of us are being a bit sensitive about this notion. And the Lebanese people are not passive. We saw before, before all this, before COVID, before the explosion, there were many protests in Beirut. It was, it was kind of one of the, it feels like another lifetime, but it was one of the big stories of uh, of, of last year and, and the start of 2020. 
Are you hopeful that, that things can still change? Last October, basically something like huge happened in Beirut. Uh, was supposed to be the disruption, the disruption, with a, with a capital everything. <laughs> so the banking sector was starting to collapse, basically fires were devastating our forests back then, exposing once again another corruption file. So last October, it was millions of Lebanese, or a million, sorry, like we don't have the exact numbers, but they took to the streets to take back what's theirs, basically. And this led to the prime minister resigning and then another political, major political deadlock. And a couple of weeks after that, the pandemic started and the acceleration of uh, the economic collapse basically exposed everything, exposed what was happening way before October. And it all went exponential. So basically before that, the, the core cause or one of the core causes of the problem is that the Central Bank of Lebanon set super high interest rates which led basically expats to send waves and waves of money to Lebanon to put them in banks. The returns on those deposits were at points like 15%, like huge. This money was used to finance the corrupt country, right? So everything crashed when the money from outside basically stopped coming and there was no longer any financing stream to the dues, to the bills that, that had to be paid. And this was happening before October, but with the movements blocking, blocking the streets, for instance, and also with the pandemic, all this accelerated. Uh, and it led basically to more and more economic collapse. In March, Lebanon defaulted on its debt for the first time ever. Today, the situation is the following. Lebanon's foreign reserves are basically drying up. The currency, the Lebanese lira, is expected to have more severe dips. The central bank may even stop subsidizing basic items. And we talk about this, it's basically economic terms, but what it means is basically in the past year, the Lebanese in Lebanon, they started to get poorer by the minute. They started to suffer from an economic devastation. They saw the, the money bill that they ha had in their hands uh, turn into like a paper with super little value. Lebanese in Lebanon also, they, they witnessed and took part of massive demonstrations that didn't lead to any change they were aspiring for. Um, and then came the coronavirus. They, they had to close down their shops again. They had to see their salaries cut again. They had to lose jobs. And then came the blast. If you only take the blast, you think it's devastating. So imagine all this in one year. I don't know about the hope of things changing. And I don't know about the hope of the movement going back and being strong as they were because of the current situation, basically. So, yeah. How old were you when you left Lebanon? 
I was 25. 26, I would say. 25, 26 when I left, yes. Is this something that you and maybe your peers in school, is this something that you always pictured doing? Yes. In a typical Lebanese family, I don't want to say something that is statistically not correct, but I would want to say in every Lebanese family, there is at least one person living abroad. It is a concept we are used to. We've been used to for you know decades. We are migrants by, by nature as well, right? So from our old history throughout the world wars and our modern history, migration and going abroad is something that we are very used to. What is different, I think, across migration cycles uh, is the idea that people have about Lebanon or about returning to Lebanon when they go abroad. My grandfather, for instance, he traveled and lived a couple of years abroad because things were looking better out there. They were looking fine in Lebanon, but they were looking better elsewhere. So he basically migrated for a couple of years to take advantage of that and to explore new horizons when it comes to his professional life and make a better living. But recently, in the last couple of years, the migration has been happening because of desperation, unfortunately. So that's the difference. What does that mean for the prospect of returning? Like, Do you think of, of returning to Lebanon? Personally, and you might think I'm very crazy, but I do. And I've always had that in mind and I've always had this goal. Of course, I do question it a lot and sometimes I fight with it when I'm faced with a challenging situation like the explosion. And it's cute, I'm mentioning challenging situation. It's a devastating situation, but I'm trying to be as chilled about it. Just in order for me to keep thinking the way, you know, like rationally, right? But for some reason, and maybe because of the, the set of cultural layers that I have, and also because of the good story that I have in my mind about Lebanon, and I know this is super emotional, it has absolutely no rational basis, because I'm just explaining to you how messed up and how chaotic the country is. But still, for some reason, I still do want to come back and explore what the country and its stories can teach me. Because I'm always in a, I'm always surprised every time I go there, how much I learn. And I'm always surprised by the level of richness. I'm not talking about money. Um, money is unfortunately not there, especially now. I'm talking about the reflexes of people. I'm talking about the, those conversations that you have in very random setups. I'm talking about streets that have history that speak out that speaks out to you. Stories everywhere, basically. I'm talking about very witty jokes that the taxi drivers would tell you and he would make your day. And I'm talking about women who are 
who basically never let go, who are always fighting so gracefully, who are always fighting with so much tenderness. And, and this teaches me a lot. Even when I go there for only three days, I come back and I say, wow, that was a trip. And I know I'm, the, I'm from there, right? I'm, I'm like 100% Lebanese, but I, I still learn a lot when I hike somewhere in the mountains and then I meet this family. And it's my country and it's my culture, but still it's crazy. And maybe it's that, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm charmed. Maybe it's the state or the, the element that we all have in common, right? Maybe it's that. That's what, that's what belonging is. Yeah. What you're describing. Yeah, exactly. I just had a big smile on my face. You made me want to go to, to Lebanon and, and see oh. it in your eyes. Oh my God. I, I would really, really love to. And trying to be as rational as I can, but I would really, you know, love to extend this invitation to you in the next couple of months because I have slight hope that is absolutely not rational that things might be okay so i really hope that you'll be able to make it well let's hope it's not the best traveling time right now <laughs> but when it is when it is I, i will meet you in beirut absolutely i can't think of a better definition of belonging than lynn gave us good story you have in your mind about a place. It makes me think global citizens do belong. They're just listening to many stories. Lebanon certainly knows how to tell one, but it can't be a bedtime story, one that makes you close your eyes. Resilience, Lynn reminded us, is not resignation, and we should all expect more than just getting by and sort of making do. I want to thank Lynn Schumann for opening up so generously, and thank you for listening. Remember, you can help me make the pod and get every episode early by joining at borderlinepod.com or looking for Borderline on Patreon. You can also help absolutely for free by sharing Borderline with your friends and giving it a quick five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And to you Frenchies still listening after 35 minutes in English, bravo! There is a French podcast now, Borderline La VF, with a new episode just out about Australia. Everything I just mentioned, you can find at borderlinepod.com. There are now transcripts too for every episode on the website. Again, that's borderlinepod.com. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production. Music is by Diala. Talk to you next week. <laughs>